Welcome back to another episode of Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Hello, I am Drew Dick, your lovely host. Uh, Lovely is probably debatable, but I am the host of this podcast, and I am really excited today to have um, an author and a good buddy of mine, Carl Vaders, on the podcast. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Drew, good to be with you. And by the way, lovely is not debatable at all. <laughs> so right. you know. <laughs> I'm definitely lovely is what you're saying, right? Uh, yeah, that, yeah. You, you can go there if you'd like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only leaves two options. Um, <laughs> well, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you if, the, if they are not familiar with your writing. Uh, Carl Vaders is a pastor, author, and very popular blogger. He's led uh, Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California for more than 30 years, uh, which is weird because, Carl, you're about, what, 39? So I don't yeah, know how, uh, how Yeah, that coming works. up on 40 in December, yeah. Wow, that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carl <laughs> is author of several books, including Small Church Essentials, 100 Days to a Healthier Church, and his latest book, which I'm looking at right here, and I had a part in in acquiring and editing, uh, is The Church Recovery Guide, How Your Congregation Can Adapt and Thrive After a Crisis. So that's kind of timely, and, and we're going to ask him uh, some questions about that topic. Uh, one other thing I need to mention about Carl uh, that's really important, and it's this. He is six foot six. Is that right, Carl? Did I get it right? That is correct. Yes. I, I lied about the age, but I'm not lying about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I'm fascinated by big people. So, you know, maybe it's because I played basketball when I was young and I always wanted to be seven feet tall, uh, even though I only made it to a measly six one. Uh, but last weekend, I'm walking down the street with my wife, Grace, and we walked past a big guy. I mean, he was like a, like a bodybuilder and he was like six, eight, six, nine. Okay. And before I even say anything, Grace turns to me and she says, I don't want to talk about it because <laughs> she knew <laughs> that I play this dumb game where I'm, I make her guess how tall the guy was and, and we talk it over and, and she's just not as excited about it as I am. So I guess my first question for you, Carl, what is the most inconvenient thing about being six foot six? Well, it used to be neckties, but I don't wear those anymore. Um, <laughs> right. So now it's, uh, and, and, and then I was going to say it's airline travel, but I'm not doing that anymore either. Nobody is. <laughs> hey, life's getting better for tall people. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, it's sitting on airplanes. That's, that's always the biggest challenge. So yeah, it, it, it used to be, you know, if now that I've done enough travel that I'm now typically in business class and occasionally get the free bump up to first class, I used to think that was just like overly luxurious. But when you're six foot six, there's nothing luxurious about it. It's just it's survival. You know, yeah, it's survival really is. Yeah. I don't, I honestly don't know how you do it because like even at six one, I'm, I'm eating my knees and the restrooms are just awful. Right. And so Yes, that that helps a little bit with my with my jealousy and wanting to be very tall. Uh, yeah. At least I'm better off in an airplane. Okay, well, down to the real questions. I wanted to ask you a few questions about how churches can bounce back from this pandemic, which I don't know if you've noticed, dear listener, uh, but is still going on. Some people thought, um, including myself, actually, that this virus might kind of die down in the summer. 
Uh, and it hasn't though. So Carl, a while back, you uh, were talking to me and you kind of broke down the stages that this crisis has presented for church leaders. I'm wondering if you can share what those stages are and what stage are they at right now? Yeah, the challenge of that is we, unlike other big events, we think back in my lifetime, for instance, to big events that really kind of transformed us or traumatized us. That's a better term for a while. 9-11 would be one of the first things in our head, for instance. And as horrific, obviously, as that and its aftermath was, it was a singular event uh, and so we all experienced it together and we all kind of went through the stages of recovery together. This is multiple massive traumatic events stacked one on top of another and changing at a moment's notice. Mm. So what we have here is not, you know, a single event and here's the stage we're at. It's, well, I'm at, you know, if, if we're looking, for instance, at Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's uh, stages of, you know, grief, I think you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Every one of us is at a different one of those stages in regard to different traumas. So while we may be, you know, a, a long way along at acceptance of the original trauma of the pandemic, we're only at maybe a middle stage uh, dealing with all of the racial divide and maybe oh, at yes. a beginning stage dealing with masks, no masks, open, not open, angry church members, because and, and whatever choice you make, you are going to create an angry church member. So we're dealing with multiple stages of recovery on multiple layers of trauma. And the first thing we need to do is recognize that complexity. Mm. Because that's yeah. what it is right now. You can look around the world and see a lot of people who are dealing with, obviously, far worse things than we're dealing with right now. And if you've got a family member who's sick or who's passed away, that is a, a level of trauma that I have, I'm not even close to dealing with. But all right. of us are dealing with the complexity right now. And that is a challenge that we haven't all faced before. So the first thing we need to do is acknowledge this is far more complex than anybody anticipated or that anybody has faced before. So we need to have some grace both for ourselves and for others as we manage the complexity. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the difficult uh, dilemma that pastors face right now. I was talking to one pastor who said that he's got parishioners sending him, you know, conspiracy videos, uh, conspiracy theory videos, basically yep. saying that the coronavirus is a hoax and we should have never stopped meeting on Sundays. Then on the other side, he, he has some healthcare professionals that are basically saying, if you reopen, even with some guidelines in place, you're putting people's lives in danger. <laughs> and so, yeah, like you yeah. said, you, I mean, it's just an impossible situation. I, I'm glad I'm not a pastor right now. Honestly, you can't reopen in a way that makes everyone happy. I guess the question for you is any, any advice for other pastors as they're facing this relatively impossible situation? Yeah, I, I think the first one is recognize that when you're in trauma, trauma demands rest. Mm. So uh, the, the most recent blog post that I wrote was we have we have shifted from being in a sprint to being in a marathon, and we need to shift our behavior that way as well. In a sprint, if you stopped halfway through for water, they'd <laughs> you'd be the laughing stock of the sprinting world. Uh, but in a marathon, there are multiple water stops along the way. There's multiple times where, you know, people who are beginning the marathon process actually stop and rest for a little bit, you know, and, and we're now in a marathon 
uh, almost like a decathlon where at any second they're going to change, you know, which activity you're in. And right. so when you're in trauma, trauma demands rest. So the first advice for pastors in this is to slow down, change your pace from sprint pace to marathon pace, because you'll burn out if you try to, to, to do that too quickly. And I think also when we slow down and we calm down, we give a bit of a sense of stability and assurance to our church members. Uh, hmm. I think I think a lot of the um, rawness of the anger that's happening right now on, on all sides, a lot of it is because we're still kind of in this get this over with quick mode. And whether you agree that it's a real thing or a hoax or not, I mean, I don't see how anybody can perceive this as a hoax. There are actual dead people. Uh, right. <laughs> yesterday, a friend of mine was diagnosed and is quarantined. There's, there's, this is a real thing. But even if you look at that and go, okay, but it's overblown. Okay, fine. What, wherever you stand, you cannot deny that this will not be over tomorrow or next week or next month. This is a long-term situation that we're in on multiple fronts, and we have to adapt our behavior to a long-term solution. So we've got to slow down. Mm. We've got to find places of rest. And then uh, a phrase that hit me the other day that I still have to write about is, don't let your trigger become your truth. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you unpack yeah, that a little I, bit? I, I wish I'd thought of it before I wrote the book. Uh, <laughs> but that's such is the nature of what we're in right now. We, exactly. you know, new things are happening every day. But everybody's going to be triggered by something different. So some people are triggered completely and totally by the medical safety issues, maybe because they're in a high risk group. And so that's understandable. Somebody else is being triggered by the racial divide. Somebody else is being triggered by the recent toppling of statues. Someone else is triggered by having to wear a mask. And don't look at one person's trigger and go, I can't believe you're triggered by wearing masks. People are dying. Well, they're not saying masks are, the issue of masks is more important to them. It's just an emotional trigger for them. And, yes. and it's possible for us to be emotionally triggered by something, even if we look at it on a value system scale and go, it's not high on my value system. It just emotionally triggers me. I don't even understand why. So we need to be careful to understand the difference between triggers and value systems and don't let your trigger become your truth. Just because the mask is triggering me doesn't mean that it's the most important thing about this right now. People's safety is more important than that. People's emotional state is more important than that. People's uh, ability to, to worship and to find God in the middle of this is more important than that. So there, we need to, we need to recognize that. And I'm seeing way too many people that are triggered by something. And because they're triggered by it, they then perceive it as the most important thing going on right now. And it's not necessarily so. Yes. Right. And I think it's especially important to not fall prey uh, to that as a church leader, because yeah, you're right. People are looking to you uh, and you're going to really dictate the tone for your congregation. Um, I want to read um, a quick quote that you have in the introduction uh, to the church recovery guide that I thought was just great. You, you write the size and scope of these current disruptions also mean that we can't ignore the need for immediate and permanent changes any longer. We must act and adapt. We can't do business or church as usual anymore. I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little bit about what are some of the implications for church leaders even after this pandemic is over uh, to the moment that we're living in? Yeah, I, there's... 
like 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 I stated in there, and as you quoted, um, for for years, most most church leaders, in, including me, have been talking about and trying to inspire other church leaders to move uh, to change. Change has been like the, the a, a real big key word that church leaders have talked about for the last uh, generation or so. And and the reason for that is during stable times, which we have really had for the last forty years, we we have lived. In, in one of the most stable moments in world history. And it's, it's hard to recognize that when you're in the middle of it, right. but we, we are, I mean, safety and financially and uh, in all kinds of other ways, enormously stable. And so the biggest challenge for most church leaders has been to try to get people out of their comfort zone. So we're always talking about change. Well, right now we're not in a moment that, that is stable at all. We are in one of the most upending moments that we've uh, had. And for most of us, the most upending moment in our lifetimes. And so now it's not about bringing change. There's plenty of change going on. Now it's about leaders providing a place of stability and of comfort and of understanding. Uh, this to me is one of the the values, for instance, of, of many of the churches who have come out and made statements about we're not going to be going back into our buildings till the end of the year or till the end of the summer or whatever. And there's all kinds of debate about that. And I understand the reason for the debate. But for me, the biggest value in that is it, it provides stability. The church members now know we are not waiting week to week on the CDC or on our state government. We know for the, for the, for the next six weeks or for the next four months or whatever, we know how our church is going to behave. And that sense of stability, even if you disagree with the decision, the fact that you now know what's going to happen is really helpful and it lets you know how to plan for the future and what to do next. So yeah, I think the, that's, that's, that's the primary job of pastors right now is to provide a sense of stability in a time that is very unstable. Yeah, because people don't even know if, if they're going to be able to send their kids back to school at this yeah. point or or how secure their job is or if they're going to continue to have to work from home or, yeah, so if you can provide just a little bit of psychological stability, that's huge. I don't know if you, you're at liberty to talk about this, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear how your church is handling it as far as reopening. Yeah, um, we're, you know, we're in California, so it's, right. you know, we're, we're, you're we're at the heart of, heart of it. <laughs> yeah, there. we're, yeah, we're in crazy town. Um and so we had, we didn't have church at all for a long period of time. And then they said, okay, uh, you know, restaurants are opening. And so we thought, okay, let's meet back. And we did two Sundays where we met in the church building. Uh, well, the first Sunday in the church building without masks. I, I'm trying to remember now because they weren't required. And then by the next Sunday, if you're going to meet inside, whether it's a restaurant or a church or a concert or whatever, you have to wear masks. Okay. So we all wore masks. We also offered the option of meeting on the patio and we have audio and video that they can see from the patio. So for those who are oh, comfortable yeah. or just like sitting outside in the nice California sunshine, they can do that. Uh, but we also offered the indoor alternative. We did that for two weeks only. And then the very next day, uh, the governor said that is not uh, legal anymore. And just real quick, it's not a target against churches. It's the same for bars, for concerts, right. for any large indoor gathering. Uh, and we've really got to be careful to call persecution something that's not persecution because mm -hmm. there are legitimately brothers and sisters in Christ being actually persecuted today. And when we call a mandate not to gather inside or having to wear a mask, when we call that persecution, quite frankly, I think we do a disservice to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are actually under real persecution right now. This is inconvenience. And yes. they may even be wrong. 
be a mistake, but a mistake and an inconvenience is not persecution. I'll get off my high horse and we'll move on. And you can edit that out later if you need to. Absolutely (laughs) not, man. We're going to lead with that. No, I'm I'm so glad you said that because I've had the same reaction. Um, And like you said, I mean, it's a live debate over whether uh, certain states are over or underreacting. We can have that conversation. But when, like you said, everything's shut from theaters to little league soccer to whatever uh, and churches you can't really make the claim that we're being singled out for persecution. Right. And so, exactly. yeah, especially. And, and then, and then the I know, I know what church. some, exactly. And I know what some people at home are thinking right now, but they're allowing protests. Okay. Sure. Right. Fine. I get it. But, and I can look at that and I can, I think it's, I think it's logical and reasonable to make the argument that they shouldn't allow protests too. I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't. I'm saying there's a logical through line to that, to mm-hmm. that argument. But, I I still look at that and I go, but they're still closing concerts, bars, theaters, and so on. So is that maybe a a prejudice? Is that maybe a mistake? Here's the thing: I think uh, I've always been of the of the belief that people aren't smart enough to put these massive conspiracies together. Right. And <laughs> if if you can credit it to to, to stupidity instead of to um, a conspiracy, 99% of the time, you're going to be right. Yeah. It's a safe <laughs> assumption. I'd agree. Yeah. Okay. Now a question about technology. Uh, and then I want to ask you some questions about your writing process. Uh, before the pandemic, a lot of churches were pretty down on streaming services and providing other forms of online church. Uh, there are a lot of comments some of which I totally agreed how that isn't really, you know, certainly a replacement for in-person gatherings. And now uh, because of the pandemic, many of them have changed their tune. Uh, I'm wondering what your take is on the role of online forms of church going forward. Is this something we should embrace wholeheartedly? Should we, uh, you know, do it, but with caution, what's your take? Uh, Yes, yes. And yes. Uh, yeah, we, we we need uh, not, not being online now is like trying to do ministry in the 1960s and not owning a telephone. Hmm. Um, it, it, is it necessary for ministry? No, but is it a simply the way people communicate today? Yeah. And if you're not doing it, then you're missing out on, on communicating to and reaching, uh, the, the large, the large majority of the people that you're wanting to reach out to. So, um, this pandemic has required forced us to adapt to technology uh, in ways that maybe some of us were slow to or even unsure about before that. What's fascinating to me, just as a side note here, every end of the world movie or television show that's ever been produced, the grid goes down and all you've got left is your survival survival skills, right? The <laughs> Matrix, Terminator, Walking Dead, the grid goes down. In this one, when it actually hits, it turns out the grid's the only thing working. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Right. And so we're all having to get on the grid because you can't do the in-person stuff anymore. It's completely backwards to what we expected. But in, in the church, um, yeah, we've had to up our uh, online game substantially over these last few months. And we have actually been able to uh, minister to people that we weren't able to minister to before. But we are treating all of our online things in, in, in one of two ways. One, uh, as a temporary solution for those who are physically incapable of being here f- for right now and who eventually will be able to gather in person again. And two, as a long-term measure that we will always have, at, but we'll see it as an on-ramp and not as an end game. 
Hmm. So we are sim- not simply looking for, hey, how do we increase our online attendance? Our idea is how do we use online church as a way of moving people forward in their spiritual growth and eventually getting them into fellowship, in-person fellowship with a congregation. Whether it's ours or another one doesn't really matter to us because that's one of the wonderful things about being online is you're not limiting the people who are uh, being ministered to, to people who are physically, geographically close to you. And so we are even guiding people uh, you know, if you're not, you know, near us and you're listening to us and we know where we got people watching us from all over the country and all over the world, you know, when you're able to get back to a church, get back into a good church. And there's no question in our minds because we've had the conversations that once this is over, our ministry of our church online will add to people in the seats of other congregations. And that is a net gain for the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. I like how you put that too. It's an on-ramp rather than the end game. Uh, And it is a very valuable tool to that end. Absolutely. Well, listeners, if you've benefited from this conversation, uh, whether you're a church leader yourself or just a church member, and this is something that you can participate in with your church when it comes to reopening, I want to encourage you to head over to moodypublishers.com and grab a copy of one of Carl's books or a couple of them. Um, you, You need to get if you're in a small church, you really need to get Small Church Essentials. That is the book for small church ministry. Uh, I've just heard literally dozens of positive reports from pastors who've read that book and it's just encouraged them, equipped them, even revolutionized their approach to ministry. It's an incredible book and it is 20% right off right now on the website. Uh, also, the book we've been talking about a little more is The Church Recovery Guide, which is brand new a very short, punchy book designed to help your congregation get through this crisis. Uh, it too is 20% off. That brings it to like, I don't know, six bucks. That's that's like a fancy coffee. Uh, remember coffee shops that we used to go to and sit in? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's about the price of, of a, a fancy coffee. So grab one of those as well by heading over to moodypublishers.com and you will receive a 20% discount today. Carl, our last thing is a segment we call The Writing Life. And I'm, and I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on this because you are a prolific guy. I remember uh, when, I, when I worked at Christianity Today years ago and we brought on your blog, it, it just immediately was getting a ton of traffic. And it was hilarious because the weekly conversation I was having with another editor is Carl's blog is getting more traffic than our entire, uh, at that point, is leadership uh, journal's website. <laughs> and so it, it was kind of good news, bad news for us. Uh, no, but it was awesome. and and. What I'm curious about is what's your process for generating so much content and so much great content? Wow. We got another two hours for that one. Um, (laughs) I know, I know that's a big question, right? Yeah. My, my, the, the main, the main thing for me where it all starts is never stare at a blank screen or a blank page. Um, Hmm. How do you avoid that? it is the most intimidating thing on earth, the blank screen or the blank page. So what I do is every time I do something like a conversation like this, when I'm done with this conversation, I will take a moment or two and I will take a couple notes about a couple things that got raised that are like, hey, that could end up being a portion of a chapter of a book or that could end up being a portion of a sermon or a portion of an mm. article. That was a new thing. So every single day I take notes about little bits and pieces that I've learned. So I'm not writing, I'm just taking notes. Then when I want to sit down to write, I look at the notes. Oh, that's good. 
So I'm never starting with a blank page. The the, the thing of I'm going to sit down and write a book. Oh my goodness. That is the most intimidating sentence I've ever heard uttered in my life. (laughs) Yes. And and as, as someone who's written four of them, let me tell you, that is an intimidating thing, but I'm going to turn these notes into a chapter. Okay. That's still intimidating, but far less intimidating. You always want to start with something. It's like, what, what did they call it? They, they used to do this thing with bread where they'd hand uh, a, a little starter piece of batter around. It was a, a thing that people, people still do where they, uh, friendship bread or something they call it, right? And mm-hmm. So you, you make your bread and you take a little piece of it and you hand it off to somebody else. And for some reason, at the, the longer that goes, the, the, more, the richer and deeper it, it, it turns into. Well, that's it. I'm always starting with a little bit of a, of a, a friendship bread piece from, from some other conversation somewhere. So it, it often turns into something that doesn't resemble the starting idea and that's fine. Right. As, but the starting idea was, was a less intimidating way to begin the process. So at this point, I've literally got a word document that I think is over a hundred pages long now of everything from full articles to little snippets of seven to 10 words or so of starter ideas. I, it has literally been years and years and years since I've sat and looked at a blank page to either begin a book or begin an article or to begin a sermon. I'm always starting with these little seeds that I picked up along the way. Oh man, that's genius. Cause starting really is the hardest <laughs> part of it. Yeah. Um, so if you've got a few notes there to kind of spin off of, that's a huge help. Uh, one other question, and it's totally unfair because this is another one we could talk for an hour on and we have like five minutes. Um, but I think a lot of people have this idea if they're an aspiring author that you have to have some huge platform. You have to be leading like a monster church or a huge organization or be famous or something in order to publish a book. Um, but you have been a career small church pastor uh, and you self-published your first book. Um, and so I'm wondering as someone who's in now, of course, publishing with Moody, which is a conventional publisher, uh, and you've grown a great platform, uh, but you didn't start from that. So I'm wondering if you could isolate one piece of advice for aspiring authors, what would that be? Um, just do it. Uh, mm. <laughs> right now there, there are no gatekeepers. The gatekeepers mm. are gone. It used to be that if you wanted to put out a book and if you did it, if you self-published, they called it vanity press, like, <laughs> right. Right. It, it, you, 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 like you're just being vain. Uh, I, I had this, I actually have to give credit to my wife for this. This is how I started. I was frustrated that for years my church didn't grow. I finally got to the point where I realized I've got to figure out what being a good and healthy small church pastor is. And because I'm a word person, I just wrote those notes down. I just kept writing it down until I had this massive volume of notes that I thought there's enough notes here that it could turn into a book. And I, and my wife kept telling me, write the book, write the book. And I, I finally turned to Shelly one day and I said, I'm not going to write a book. I mean, nobody knows who I am. Nobody's going to buy my book and nobody's going to buy a book about small churches anyway. And she said, well, who else is going to write a book about small churches other than a small church pastor? Hmm. And how many famous ones do you know? Right. (laughs) Oh, okay. So I, I, I wrote the book basically to get it off of my chest. And then with the extra bits and pieces that didn't fit into the flow of the book and that the book, that's the original book, the grasshopper myth. Yeah. Um, then I started my website cause I've got these bits and pieces that didn't fit into the flow of the book. So let me start a blog and I can sell the book through the blog. So that was where you first found me to bring me over to leadership journal, I think was at my blog. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, 
and, and then I decided I'm going to put out the best content I possibly can for free on the blog, and I'm going to do it consistently. Most, the biggest mistake most people make when they're trying to put a book out or trying to get a blog started is inconsistency. Mm. So find a pace that you know you can keep. Start at one a week, two a week is even better. Three a week will kill you because it nearly killed me. Uh, (laughs) But three a week will also uh, increase the audience because people know something is coming consistently. But be consistent about it and write about what you know. Hmm. So if you're a pastor and you want to write about politics, why should they care what their pastor says about politics? Write about your pastor and write about what you've learned in your field of study. And so my field of study, my field of expertise was small churches. I thought it was a failure and it turns out it was my expertise. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's awesome. So I wrote about that. Yep. Such good advice. Um, Carl, thank you for giving us this time and for your sharing your wisdom uh, on writing and especially on some principles for how churches can bounce back from this pandemic, because I know we say it all the time, but it really is an almost unprecedented challenge. And I'm not sure if we even grasp sometimes what a challenge this has been for us as Christians, aside from the the people that are dying and are sick, um, even the very word for church, which is... Um, Ecclesia, right? Which means to gather. And that's the one thing we can't do right now. (laughs) So um, I just appreciate this encouragement. Uh, We need to stay faithful, uh, be creative, be adaptive, uh, stay listening to God and and staying in community with the tools that we have. Some of those are technological, um, all while looking forward to the time in hopefully the not so distant future where we can physically gather once again, shake each other's hands, hug, talk, share meals, because that's all essential to church life. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I want to encourage you to head over to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave us a review. Those help a ton. Uh, You can just even like, you know, give us four or five stars if you're so inclined or leave a comment. That'd be great too. That just helps people find us. Every review counts and you get some rewards in heaven too. Uh, That may not be true, but it doesn't hurt to try. Uh, Anyway, thank you again for listening. Thank you, Carl, for, for joining us. And until next time, keep reading.